Hello, and welcome back. Today we have Dr. Gerald Isfran, Medical Director of the MD Center for Integrated Health in Monterey, California. Dr. Isfran, we're so glad to have you back with us. And I know you've been doing a deep dive into obesity and how we got here as a country. And I wonder if you could share some things with us today. What have you been finding in your research? How did we get here? Thank you very much for having me on again. Thank you for the previous podcast. Um, I think there's a lot of information that we talked about in the previous podcast that uh, leads people to beginning to understand what maybe we can do. But I think we have to look back at the factors that have influenced uh, dietary policy change and its influences on our country, which go back to let's say the late 40s, early 50s. So now we're talking about over 70 years worth of, um, how to call it, um, input from many different sources from the government to societal influences that have uh, brought us to certain places. So the beginning point that I look at goes back to, and it's one beginning point of many different factors, but one of them is this evolution of this lipid hypothesis which came about in 1953 from a gentleman who, by the name of Ansel Keys, was considered the, the godfather of lipidology. A uh, very famous individual, very well researched, and um, in fact made the cover of Time magazine in the late 60s. So he had a powerful influence on this process. And what, what was interesting was that he had a couple things that he stated based upon some data that he looked at that he pursued throughout his uh, career. And number one was that saturated fats raise cholesterol. And number two, high cholesterol clogs arteries. And the question really is, is did the evidence support that completely? So as we um, look towards the data that he looked at, and uh, that data was comparing 13 different countries. And those countries range from Japan to Italy, England, Wales, Australia, Canada, the United States, other countries that were looked upon were, were France, uh, Switzerland, Norway, uh, Denmark, um, Finland. So what, what was correlating in there was that he looked at the deaths per 1,000 on one axis, the y-axis, and on the x-axis, fat calorie consumption uh, and its influences. So for degenerative heart disease in men, uh, this is going back to data from 1940 to 49, they found that the higher fat calorie percentage, the greater deaths per 1,000 were seen. So Japan and Italy were towards the bottom, and the United States was at the top of that. But on the other hand, what wasn't being said was that there was a, there was a mimicry of also data that came out, which was, which was closely tied to the fat, and that was the glucose consumption. Uh, you can call it glucose or sugar or carbohydrate consumption. However you want to call it, it's all the same thing. So on one hand, you had Japan, which was about equal between fat and uh, sugar consumption at the bottom of this, of this curve. And at the top, you had the United States and Australia and Canada and these other countries. So when you compare the data by looking at fat versus looking at sugar, they're pretty much equal across the board. So you could imagine as this physiologist, Dr. Keyes, looked at the data, being that he was interested in the lipids, he went towards this lipid hypothesis. I looked at this in retrospect and said, well, it's kind of a coin. 50%, give it a shot, pursue the lipid hypothesis. But what about the glucose hypothesis? 
what happens if we increase our glucose consumption in our diet and how does that correlate? So that's where, where a little bit of, of some controversy began to come forth from the 50s and moving into the 60s, where in the 60s, several studies were done, which were looking at unsaturated fat versus saturated fat and seeing how that would correlate with uh, coronary artery disease. And in that data, it was controversial at best, which is science at work. Um, something should be able to be proven and should be able to be repeatable. And in this case, it wasn't necessarily, but nevertheless, a strong argument was made. And and uh, and that's fine. I think it, it took our country our, our country to a, a certain direction, and that direction uh, continued. So now, as we fast forward a little bit to the early 70s, there was a report on malnutrition, which occurred around 1972 to 1973, and the title of that report was the Dietary Goals for the United States, and it was also known as the McGovern Report. And what it suggested was that Americans eat less fat, less cholesterol less refined and processed sugars, and more complex carbohydrates and fiber. It sounds good. I think, I think this was feeding a, um, a story uh, of, of what was going on with this, and in this particular dietary goal segment kind of fit that. So now, as this recommendation started coming forward, um, the, the next thing to happen was then U.S. Dietary Guidelines, which came forth in uh, 1977. And those guidelines talked about six different tenets. And as we kind of go through them, it'll be rather interesting. Number one, we wanted to increase carbohydrate consumption up to 55 to 60%. We also wanted to decrease fat consumption from 40% down to 30%. So increase carbs, decrease fat. Reduce saturated fat down to 10% and increase polyunsaturated fats. We also wanted to limit cholesterol to about 300 milligrams per day. We wanted to reduce sugar consumption by 40%. And we also wanted to reduce salt consumption to about three grams per day. So this sounds really good. This is basically what had been taught, whether it's in medical school or what was kind of a normative in terms of what was being probably uh, instructed elsewhere uh, throughout our educational system. But I I have to stop and look at this and say, how do I increase my carbs or my sugar to 60% while at the same time reducing my sugar by 40%? So I don't think there's any ill intent with this, but I think it did lead to some confusion. And that confusion um, really, really has affected us through today um, because somehow fat received a bad name and carbs were somehow let off the hook, so to speak. So how is this kind of explained? If we look at the pyramid, uh, kind of the food pyramid that was created to help explain this, it's a four-tiered pyramid that was, that was kind of sectioned off in different areas. The, the bottom of this pyramid was bread, grain, cereal, pasta, kind of as the foundation, uh, implying that we should be having more of those, which is consistent with this uh, increasing our, our complex carbohydrates. The second level was vegetables, and you could put salads in there too, and then fruit at the same level. So we're still talking about glucose, or we're talking about fructose. Um, and then above that, you had dairy, which now brings in all three food groups, which would be carbs, uh, proteins, and fats. And at the same level, proteins. And then above that, you had fats, oils, and sweets. So um, last podcast, I talked about really where do our 
where do our best calories come from? So if we have carbohydrates or sugar, we're talking about a two hour window, which we get about four kilocalories per gram of energy. And we trigger our pancreas to put out insulin to grab all that sugar and pull it out of the bloodstream because it causes inflammation in our body. And we also talked about proteins give us about four hours of good energy and it gives us maybe 3.5 to four um, uh, grams per kilogram worth of uh, energy. And then fat gives us nine uh, kilogram, nine grams per kilogram worth of energy that, that we get from, from this most efficient source. So with that said, we're still seeing that a diet is heavily laden upon what I would call the cheapest form of energy, which is about a two-hour window, which does cause other issues in our body, such as pancreatic stress and hyperglycemia, and which can lead to other things. So, so that's kind of the, the bigger perspective that, that this began to show. So, so with that, um, why is it that sugar became so easy? Part of this is physiological. Our brain uh, has dopamine receptor sites, and sugar, just getting slightly enough of that, can be able to trigger this feeling that, ah, I got what I needed, and I'm pretty good with this, and this is really comfortable, and I can do this again, because it's short-acting. And this is why we can go through and have a bowl of cereal every morning and not think anything of it from Monday through Friday, Whereas if we have a dinner in which we have, let's say, a filet mignon steak with some mashed potatoes and green beans and a wonderful dessert, and if we have that on one night, but we're expected to eat that every single night for the next seven nights, we don't want to see another filet mignon for the probably the rest of our lives because our, our body doesn't work that way. Our body needs a variety in our diet in order to survive it. It is a survival mechanism. But sugar is one of these subtle little things in there that can trigger just enough dopamine to make this a factor and, and keep us kind of looking for more of it. Hence the sweet tooth concept, I think, is how that has developed. So, so as we look upon that, now we have to go back and consider once again, what is, um, what is the prevalence of sugar in our diet? As I mentioned in the previous podcast, around 1905, um, there was about maybe five, maybe even up to 20 pounds of sugar that was consumed per year. One astute listener to the podcast pointed that out to me, so I thought I appreciated that. So anyway, we're looking at 5 to 20 pounds of sugar per year, but if we fast forward to today, what are we looking at? We're looking at a between 150 to 200 pounds of sugar consumption per year. Well, that sounds like a lot, but let's really put a proper perspective on that. If we take somebody who over the last 40 years has been part of this different um, concept in terms of how much glucose and, and carbohydrate consumption we're getting over a 30-year span, we're talking about our pancreas having to handle between 4,500 and 6,000 pounds of sugar in a 30-year span. Well, what organ takes care of that? The pancreas, as best as, as best as it can. And I think this is where we have to say, what has gone on? Why do we have not only diabetes, not only heart disease, what is also part of the bigger spectrum of dyslipidemia, part of metabolic syndrome. How does that influence that? Well, this very fact right here that we're talking about this much consumption of sugar on an annual basis is, has been the factor which has changed. There was data that was looking at carbohydrate intake from 1960 and measuring it, let's say, every decade, 60, 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2020. And what we found was 
was that when these dietary policy changes occurred in 1977, the way that this curve was measuring carbohydrate intake and percentage of obesity, because now I'm switching a little bit over to obesity, what happened to obesity during this time period from 1960 moving forward? Well, if you, if you march out this curve, you'll find that between Europe and where this curve was going pre-1977, Europe has about 18 to 20% um, obesity. But after the early to mid-80s, uh, this curve took a really sharp upward turn in the United States to the point where we are now at above 30% obesity in our country based upon carbohydrate or glucose or sugar intake, however you want to describe that. So there's a big change here. Europe's policies didn't change, but our policies certainly did change. And what, what drove that? What drove that were the cultural reinforcers of concepts such as what we saw restaurants back in the 80s and 90s of all you can eat or dietary policies. I wouldn't, misinformation may be a strong word, but or I, I should say um, there was no ill intent, but it was a little bit of misinformation in terms of where are we laying our, our um, caloric source being for what we need to get from what sources, whether it's fats, proteins, and carbs. And once again, I'm saying that carbs is the factor that we increased it up to 60% and we felt that was okay. And somehow we were so supposed to magically decrease our, our sugar intake, which I, I don't know how that how that's done because I think it confused a lot of a lot of people by by mentioning that. So so this is where where I don't put blame on the grain industry either. They were just doing their job, but nevertheless, this is what we're having to deal with today. If we're looking at metabolic syndrome, let's once again focus downward once again to glucose levels. We have the means to measure a three-month measure for our blood sugar called the hemoglobin A1C. And this hemoglobin A1C measurement is rather interesting because if we look at now trying to correlate obesity and hyperglycemia or diabetes, where do we begin to see the changes? We know this, that if a hemoglobin A1C level uh, ranges from five to six or six to seven, we see pretty much no changes in all-cause mortality up to a hemoglobin A1C of about 6.5. But once we hit that magic 7.0 mark with the hemoglobin A1C, we see an acute rise in coronary heart disease events. And this is really significant because once again, we're saying, okay, lipids may be a factor that we can't ignore, but a bigger factor given the fact that we're we're handling 4,500 to 6,000 pounds of sugar in our diet over a 30-year span, which 20-year-olds are typically not type 2 diabetics, but 50-year-olds can be, then we're seeing heart attacks when? In the 20-year-old? No, we're seeing it in the 50-year-old. So now we see a, an incredible rise in coronary heart disease events. Another way of saying the same thing, next slide, is that um, a hemoglobin A1C measurement can increase if it's increased by 1%, well, let's say once again, from five to six or six to seven, the data showed that this was associated with a 20 to 30% increase in cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality in men and women between ages 45 and 79 years of age. So going back to what I said in the previous podcast, I want to assess a person over the first 50 years of their life to see if we can give them another 50 years of their life and make it just as enjoyable. Well, this is, this is one of these factors that if we identify as being an issue, 
is something that needs intervention and needs to be changed. And that is looking really very deeply at one's diet and where are they getting their calories from. So, so this is rather, rather important. And I think, I think that's, that's where we want to uh, begin to understand what does it really mean? Uh, next slide. So what's interesting is we can talk about diabetes in certain terms. Type 1 diabetes, which would be the body cannot produce insulin, the pancreas is defective, and you hear sadly about these cases that affect children and they're on insulin for the rest of their lives and they have to manage it. We know about type 2 diabetes, which is implying insulin resistance, which is kind of what I've been talking about with if our poor pancreas has had to metabolize you know, 4,500 to 6,000 pounds of sugar over a 30-year span, that poor pancreas is going to wear out because as any organ would wear out, it's being overused. But what do we get to look forward to in a sense? And that is the concept of type 3 diabetes. And there's increasing literature in this area, which, which looks at insulin resistance as mediators of Alzheimer's type um, neurodegeneration of dementia. And, and this information is rather tough because how does our body handle um, this ever-increasing preponderance of, of Alzheimer's disease if we're now correlating it to what we now call type 3 diabetes? We know this. Our muscles are very well equipped to metabolizing glucose and lipids and detoxifying and, and helping our overall metabolism. But our brain is a fatty organ. It doesn't have that muscular ability to metabolize things the way that the rest of our body does. So it's kind of out there and it's kind of vulnerable. And we know that glucose and sugar are highly inflammatory and can cause a lot of problems, especially with our brain. And if we're talking about causing increased inflammation, you're talking about decreased blood flow, you're talking about decreased uh, brain function uh, that affects memory, affects uh, cognitive awareness, um, all these other factors. This is, this is now what we are having to deal with unless we can head off this process, identify it early enough, and then be able to modify and change what we're doing so that we don't go that direction. So this is where, once again, modifying our carbohydrate intake and reducing it to more healthy levels is the way that we need to, uh, to proceed with this. Next slide. What's the percentage that we're talking about? As I talked about in an earlier slide, um, we are dealing with now two out of three Americans are overweight um, or over fat, 85% are over fat. The obesity for children um, hitting 33% and even higher. This is, this is uh, significant because if you really want to look at what's, what's driving healthcare costs, and I think healthcare costs fall into the category of cardiovascular disease. What's driving cardiovascular disease? Well, we, we can't ignore obesity. This is, this is the, the biggest, no pun intended, issue that we're dealing with. And if we're looking at a, somewhere near $150 billion per year, you know, being spent by Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers for this issue alone, then I think of it as physicians are stuck with either Band-Aid medicine or trying to do something else, trying to be able to intervene and change the, the course of direction with what we're doing. And that is, I think, the greatest challenge that's happening today. And good news is, is I think there is more awareness about this today. But I think it's 
it's so pervasive that we're looking at an issue that really started 70 years ago, and the dialogue continues today with certain tenets being accepted in terms of the lipid hypothesis, as opposed to addressing this bigger issue, this this more uh, science issue of um, how do we deal with obesity in this country? So, so that's where you know I kind of wanted to lay this groundwork for what we're dealing with with regards to um, um, obesity and uh, hyperglycemia and diabetes and its effects on heart disease. One other um, slide that I have in here, um, if you go to the next slide, there was a study done by the Journal of American College of Cardiology performed in 2012, which looked at a couple of issues that were rather interesting. And that is, it looked at the cumulative incidence of ischemic heart disease for patients with blood sugars at 200 versus blood sugars at 90. What they found was 30% of the population would have ischemic heart disease manifesting itself with a blood sugar of 200. And as you move down from 200 down to, let's say, let's the 90, then 30% of the population at age 82 would begin to manifest ischemic heart disease. So that's a 22-year swing right there between managing our blood sugars and what its effects were on the body. Likewise, they looked at incidence of acute myocardial infarction. And what they found was patients with blood glucose levels of 200, 30% of the population had an acute myocardial infarction by age 67. But if you look at that same population, if their glucose levels were less than 90, it was at age 93 or 94, where 30% of the population would have an acute myocardial infarction. So now we're talking well over 25 years worth, if not even close to 30 years, of an incidence of a heart attack occurring if glucose levels are being controlled. This is rather powerful. So we can begin to really correlate now what goes on between control of blood glucose and how that occurs. And it's not just type 2 diabetes, it's about metabolic syndrome and its effects because now we're bringing into the equation ischemic heart disease or an event such as an acute myocardial infarction. So how do we get ourselves out of this mess that we're in? <laughs> I think, I, I think the, the simple of the simple is we can use medicine to help turn the tide and plug the leaking holes in the ship, so to speak. But what we've done three times a day with our diet really comes down to what we've done three times a day for our entire lifetimes. So that's where we look at, okay, um, what's my, what am I eating and when am I eating it? Once again, the whole concept of king, prince, pauper, our largest meal should be in the morning where we have more metabolic activity, a lesser meal at lunchtime where we're beginning to slow down a little bit. And then the smallest meal of the day should be dinner where it should be light so that we're not sitting there all night long trying to digest our meal and suffer the consequences of, of doing that and telling our body to do something um, when we are least metabolically active. And that's, that's the, when, in one sense, the hardest thing to change. But once patients grab onto this concept, I think that's where they begin to see improvement. It gets back to what I discussed in the previous podcast about using an impedance scale, where if that impedance scale can tell you about your muscle mass and your fat mass, and you begin to make some changes fundamentally with your diet, you're going to help your physician so much more 
because now you're not setting yourself up for increased weight, but the ability to burn the calories that you have. And if your body is storing um, energy in the form of fat, it's ready to use that fat. We just have to call upon our body to do that. And if we don't eat, for example, from let's say 6 p.m. at night till 8 o'clock the following morning, well, that's a great little fast. I mean, the, the concept of intermittent fasting is fine, but that is an intermittent fast. If we give ourselves about 14 hours of, of not eating, okay, that's really wonderful because then our body is going to say, okay, I have to do something to derive energy in order to make it through the night, which is good because we don't have to do a lot when we're sleeping necessarily. So therefore, we want to set up our bodies for success this way. And I think, I think on a macro level, I think it's the simplest thing to begin to look at for patients to be able to say, what am I eating and when am I eating it? And what do we do to avoid the foods that set us up for trouble? Well, for dinner, it means avoiding this whole concept of the grains, the pastas, the rice, the potatoes, these high glycemic index carbohydrates. Um, you can also throw caloric beverages, sodas, juices, alcohol, uh, desserts. I mean, those kinds of things just all set us up for telling our body going, go into fat storage versus go into fat utilization. So that's where that becomes rather important to tell our bodies, no, this is what we need to do. We can get those calories early in the day. And we can burn them off if we have a, if we have enough activity. Um, but we don't want to be setting ourselves up at the end of the day, uh, for, 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 um, putting ourselves into a fat storage mode and taxing our pancreas. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So I know we've run close on time here, but I would love to have you back to talk about macronutrients and micronutrients in our diet, because I'm sure it all makes a lot of sense and probably turning those pyramids that we've all learned about, just turning them um, all around. But um, yeah. would you consider coming back to do a, a lecture for us on that? That'd be great. That'd be a lot. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun, and um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, to share. Thank you. I would love that. Well, thank you again for your time and explaining to us how we got here from the Ansel Keys studies all the way to current time. And boy, we certainly had a lot wrong, didn't we? We're learning so much now. So great. It's great to finally understand and and be able to make some changes. So thank you again for joining. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Peggy. Appreciate it.